Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's right, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, you'll enjoy 10% off your first month because if you're like me, we've all experienced those moments where our world was just swallowed up in a dark feeling. Uh, Our experiences were beyond the scope of what we could handle, and we needed some buoyancy, some levity. We needed to feel like uh, we could come up and breathe air. Uh, If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, they will help you within the next 48 hours breathe that first big breath. They will help you find the understanding, that buoyancy, that joy, that lightness that we've been seeking. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and enjoy 10% off your first month free right now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Heidi Bartle. She is the host of, host, (laughs) she is the author of When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression. It shares the story of a mother struggling with depression despite having a beautiful life, including three kids. It shows the things the mother does to get better, like see a doctor and therapist and take medicine, as well as self-care activities that help her stay out of bed. It addresses the powerful feelings that come with depression and ends with a message of hope. The book includes a glossary of terms, discussion questions, and an activity guide to support discussions about depression at home and in the classroom. Let's jump into the episode. I'm, I'm excited to have you on because uh, you, you, you did what I, I hope that all my listeners do, Heidi, which is, you know, send me a message about how, one, the, you know, that they've been listening to the podcast because then that, that <laughs> feeds me and keeps me going. But two, um, a willingness to share their story of strength, courage, and hope and how they've overcome. And because and I, I truly believe that it's through stories that we feel empowered and that we can hopefully see ourselves in what the other person has gone through and then are able to see it in ourselves that we can get through it. Um, what, what's your story, Heidi? Well, I'm a mother of five and I have struggled with depression since I was about 15 on and off. So I have a lot of years of struggle, (laughs) but it was, I was meeting with a therapist maybe five years ago and she really encouraged me to talk about it. And I'd never had a therapist tell me you got to get out of yourself in order to get better. And she specifically wanted me to talk to my kids, which felt completely impossible because I was still struggling with the idea that I was broken, that I was not fixable, that I was therefore a bad mother because I couldn't be perfect for them. But I took it to heart and I, through the process of talking to them, I discovered that it really is in sharing your story that you can heal. It's not the only element of healing but talking about it has been so therapeutic. And I ended up writing this book as a result of that assignment from my therapist. I just thought I was writing it as as an assignment, as a way to talk to my kids about it. But it 
turned into an actual publication. And now I have heard from so many people how wonderful it is to have a guide to share their story with their kids in a relatable way. It doesn't have to be scary. We don't have to scare our children when we're saying I have this difficult situation, but we can relate, they can relate to us and we can relate to them. And, um, opening up about something hard in my life has actually been really good for my relationship with my kids and, um, with my husband and it's been good with friends. And I've just learned a lot about opening up in general and trying to make, make my feelings more known and it has helped me get help. Well, the book that you speak of is called When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression. When you say depression, I feel like that's a word that's being thrown around so much. Uh, and I think sometimes people feel sad, but they're labeling it depression. Sometimes people are grieving, but they're labeling it just depression. What did your depression look like, Heidi? When I was in high school, it looked like just feeling sad. I couldn't put a label on it. And I didn't have a mental health vocabulary at all. And so I thought that I was inferior or less than my peers who had legitimate problems. I recognized that I had had an ideal life. I had wonderful parents. I had siblings who loved me. I had a safe home. I had opportunity and was involved in lots of things. Why on earth would I be sad? That didn't make any sense. And so it just felt like sort of an oppressive sadness. At the time, it came and went, kind of came and went through college. After I had my first child, I kind of had a resurgence. It was not postpartum depression. It wasn't associated with the birth at all. It was about a year later. But again, I had all of these wonderful things lined up. I had a college degree. I had a husband who had two college degrees. He had a wonderful job. We had just purchased a home. We lived in a place we loved. We had family. And I was sad. I cried a lot. And I didn't understand anything about what I was feeling. It didn't make sense. And it, of course, it has to make sense, right? <laughs> so it didn't make sense. And I didn't know that it was depression. I had a degree in health sciences and we didn't have classes that I remember about mental illness. It was not part of the conversation or the education. I graduated in 2000 and I'm sure that the curriculum is different now and there's a greater emphasis on mental health. But as a young 20 something, I did not have the vocabulary for this is a mental illness. It wasn't until after I had my fourth child that when depression was more of an everyday experience, I remember I was emailing a friend and I was feeling terrible and I finally had a label. I knew that this was depression, but it, it was the irritability. It was the sadness. It was the inability to do the things that I loved to do. I couldn't make myself exercise. I couldn't make myself go outside. I didn't want to engage with my kids. And I realized that it was depression somewhere along the way. I had that vocabulary, but I also had the stigma of, well, if I have depression, 
then I'm broken. If I have depression, then I have to take medication and I don't even take Tylenol. I don't take medicine. That's just only weak people take medicine. You know, these are the things that I was telling myself. I don't know that anyone ever told me that, but that was what I had picked up. That if you had a mental illness, something was really wrong with you. And so I didn't get help. I, I emailed a friend about this experience, what I was thinking. And she said, oh, Heidi, I want you to know, first of all, that I see you. And I know that you're a wonderful person. You are not the monster that you're describing, but please get help. What can I do to help you get help? And I refused. I would not take medication. I kind of hid behind, well, I'm nursing a baby, so I can't take an antidepressant because of course I knew everything and had made all of the decisions before I even talked to a doctor, but I didn't get help. And then eventually things kind of resolved after that episode. But then I had one more pregnancy that we wanted very much. And I was so sick. I was, it wasn't just garden variety morning sickness. This was hyperemesis. It was doctors couldn't control it with medication. I had home nursing care and IVs and eventually a pick line that got infected and the baby and I nearly died. It was very traumatic and very stressful. And I had a young family to take care of aside from that. But we got through that crisis. And toward the end of the pregnancy, my baby was born in August. So maybe end of June, I was kind of living normal life. And I had some of my kids' friends over for a summer party. And a mom came to pick up her child and she said, Heidi, I am really worried about you. And I said, why are you worried about me? <laughs> I was still throwing up every day, <laughs> but in my mind, that was just my normal. That's just what we were doing. And I just had my eye on when the baby was born, things will be fine. But my friend said, I think you're depressed. And here are the symptoms that I see. And I'm worried about these things. And will you please go see a doctor and get on some medication so you can stabilize before the baby was born? Um, looking back, I think what an amazing friend to approach me with a concern that's sensitive, but she cared enough about me to reach out and to actually do something. At the time, I was so offended <laughs> because. Couldn't she see all of the things that I could do? Couldn't she see? I just threw a party for her child and my child and all of these amazing things. She could see reality. And I was just focused on the tasks that I could physically accomplish again that I hadn't been able to do when I'd been so ill. Um, of course, she was right. I was wrong. And I totally crashed after my baby was born. And then the whole world was kind of swallowed up in the dark feelings that I was having. I loved my baby and my other children and somehow we were surviving, but I was crying all the time and I could not take care of myself and do basic tasks. And it was really beyond the 
scope of what I could handle. And my husband was worried about me, but I was so ashamed because I still felt like depression was a character flaw. I thought it was something I was doing wrong. I didn't appreciate it as a medical illness. So I was emailing the same friend who lived in a different state, telling her how I was feeling. And she tracked down someone who lived near me, who came over and who sat with me until I called the doctor. She made me (laughs) make that difficult step. And then I thought, okay, now I have a doctor's appointment. I'll go see him. I'll get a prescription and this will be over. And that wasn't my experience at all. I, I kind of thought that maybe there was one or two good antidepressants out there that could take care of everybody. And I was not prepared for experimenting with medications for many months and for having a cocktail of medications. My reality was two or three antidepressants or Anyway, it took a while to sort out side effects and what would work and what didn't. And that was a very challenging time because the relief of symptoms didn't come for many months after I started seeing a doctor. And then I was surprised when an antidepressant did finally work, started pulling me out of the hole. I started feeling emotions besides sadness and irritability started feeling more like myself again. And then I wanted to make up for lost time. And I didn't know it at the time, but it kicked me into a manic phase. And that led to me being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which completely rocked my world. I was just starting to come to terms with having depression with realizing this might be a lifelong struggle with embracing the stigma of, or rejecting the stigma, I should say, of depression. I was just starting to tiptoe into that territory when I received this, what I felt like was a much heavier diagnosis with a stronger stigma and a scarier prognosis. Depression seemed more um, understandable and bipolar was more of a mystery. And I had watched television and people on television who have bipolar dance naked in the streets and they do really crazy things. And I couldn't believe that that was me. I'm just this little mom with a bunch of little kids trying to be a normal person. (laughs) And I didn't, I really struggled almost with an identity crisis. As I looked back over my life, I could see patterns, very clear patterns of ups and downs throughout my life. Bipolar fits. It really does. But it took a while for me to understand that I could have my version of bipolar that wasn't the extreme Hollywood version of bipolar. And to be fair, that version does exist for people. That's real for some people. It's not real for me. My, my mania looks different than that, but I, I really had to figure out who I was again after receiving that diagnosis. And it was a struggle for years. I received that diagnosis in 2012 
when my kids ranged in age from one to 11, now they're 10 to 20. So we've grown up a little bit in those years and it's been a journey. It's been a journey for all of us. Heidi, that, that story, that journey is so powerful. And so many people I am sure can relate to experiencing the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the, the depressive episodes, the mania. But I want to peel back to something you said early on in terms of the sadness, because mm-hmm. a lot of times there's a, a dump truck going on in the background right now. I don't know if the listeners can pick that up. But um, <laughs> a lot of times when we experience an emotion, one of the ways that we can tap into it the quickest is to recognize how it shows up in our body and where it shows up. Like I know for me, uh, anger, I feel in my chest, uh, in my hands, sadness, I feel behind my eyes. Where do you register sadness in your body? I have a heaviness through my whole body. Like I'm walking around under a weighted blanket and I get stomach aches. But I did not realize that I carry sadness and stress in my stomach until I went to therapy. I did not know that that was the symptom that I could react, that I could recognize and work on once it showed up in my body. And holding it in your stomach, did you go to like foods or or drugs or something external to cope with that I I could see you know people reaching for like for me I like I'll reach for sugar and carbs uh when I feel it in my stomach what was how what was your way of coping with that before therapy uh food certainly um it's a kind of a feeling of nausea and the thing that I had to untangle because of when I started seeing a therapist maybe five months after my baby was born, I had to untangle what is a stress stomach ache and what is morning sickness? (laughs) Because they were, they feel the same to me. And so looking back, had I been in therapy during my pregnancy, would it have been as severe? I don't know. That's an, it's an interesting thing to think about. I, For a while, I felt guilty that I had made things worse or something during my pregnancy by not being aware of how much I could control that feeling. But now if I get a stomach ache, I don't always reach for something to tamp it down, which is definitely a coping strategy when I was pregnant. I ate all the things to avoid feeling nauseated. But have there been any uh, tools that your therapist has given you in terms of coping with that type of uh, stress stomach ache? Any any psychological tools or exercises? Uh, breathing, definitely breathing exercises. I can breathe through a stomach ache pretty well now. Also, I have um, affirmations that I use when I am feeling stress. And interestingly, I had a, a medical experience a couple of months ago where I was, I was getting a test to scan my kidneys and I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with my kidneys, but during the test, I was lying on a 
table and an x-ray machine was over me. So I was kind of sandwiched between the two things and the technician was injecting some medication to track the, the progress of fluid through my kidneys. I was nervous about the test, just positionally, it was kind of claustrophobic and I have a history of reacting strangely to medicines, uh, mostly psychiatric medicines. <laughs> I have had so many experiences where a doctor has said, I have never seen this before. And none of my patients have ever reacted this way. So I go into medical situations a little bit nervous. In this situation, I was nervous, but I had talked to the technician about all the possible outcomes and she assured me everything would be fine. No one ever reacts to this medication. So I started reacting to the medication after about 10 minutes and I'm lying between these two machines and it's timed. And so if you get out early, then you have to do it again. And so I was trying really hard to just be calm. So I'm, I'm recalling all of these experiences through therapy about breathe in for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds. You know, there are different things, strategies to lower my heart rate and calm down. And then immediately after I started those exercises, the thoughts came, I am safe. My body is healthy. I am calm. And those three things just went through my mind again and again and again, because I didn't want to be reacting emotionally to the drug if there wasn't a physical reaction to the drug. It turns out there was a physical reaction to the drug and we called the paramedics and things were kind of dramatic. But I was so pleased that in a traumatic situation, my work in therapy helped me. It helped me a lot. I did go back to my therapist a few days later and said, I need EMDR. Let's do it because that helped me process the trauma of that medical event. But I was so glad that I had experience in therapy to know that that was the safe place where I could process the hard things and that I had learned tools there to process the hard things while they were happening. There's, you know, the word that I am noticing most often is this word safe and that you know, part of your affirmations is I am safe, which is something mm -hmm. I actually had to tell myself the other day when I wanted to go on a, a food binge. And um, mm -hmm. because I know I hold stress in my stomach also. And there is something about reminding myself that I'm safe. I'm, I'm not under any threat. I'm just um, feeling heightened or, or dysregulated for whatever reason. But I'm, I am safe. That helped to calm me down. Um, but you also described your childhood as growing up in a safe household. Mm -hmm. Was there, oftentimes when I hear people say I grew up in a safe household, I also register that like the basic needs were met, food, house, shelter, clothing. And so sometimes when you have those things being met, um, we can feel guilty over uh, experiencing any other type of uh, emotional pain, whether it's abandonment or feelings of neglect or just 
even asking for anything. It's like to ask for something when you already have so much just feels like, is there something emotionally that you felt like you needed as a child? We've explored this a lot in therapy. <laughs> and really, I, I, I don't feel like I had unmet needs. Of course, there were things, ups and downs in life. And of course, there was teenage drama and whatever. And looking back, would I have benefited from therapy and medication at 16? Probably. But I don't. I don't blame anyone for that. I feel like it was a, a time when we didn't talk about stuff like that. I didn't feel like I couldn't talk to my parents. I didn't, I just didn't know what to say. I didn't feel like I couldn't tell a friend, but I didn't know that I was depressed. I didn't know it was a thing. I just thought it was low self-esteem or, you know, a, a personal failing of mine. I. I don't think that there was something missing. And I think that when I describe my childhood as idyllic and safe and stable, it's because I know so many people who didn't have that growing up. And I look back and I appreciate two parents who loved each other and a stable home and a family that I liked being with. And I had an education and I always had food and I always had clothes. So I think at the time I didn't walk around thinking, oh, I'm safe. I have such a good life. You know, as a six-year-old, I probably didn't do that. As a 15-year-old, probably didn't appreciate that. But I think it's more in looking back at all the opportunities that I had and so many good things that happened as a child that that kind of set me up for feeling like, why would I be sad? There's no reason for me to be sad. And I had a similar experience as a young adult with my own family. Why am I sad? Everything's good. It didn't mean it was perfect, but you know, I had, I had lots of good opportunities and definitely stability and safety. It's so valuable to have that stability and and safety. And you're right. I I look. I remember as a kid, where there were moments where I, you know, was going through depression and seasonal affective disorder, and but um, I just didn't know how to even begin a conversation with my parents. Right. Yeah. Like where yeah. do you where do you even start? Um, and but part of that was I kind of grew up with in a household where you took responsibility for everything. You know, it's like you figure it out. Uh, it's up to you. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And so I was always looking inward. And and now what I'm learning is that even if I don't have the words to just say, I'm, I'm going through something, I don't know what it is, and here's what it looks like. I'm just sleeping more. You know, to kind of describe the behaviors instead of the emotions, because I find that mm -hmm. describing the emotion is difficult, especially for kids, but you can describe the behaviors of I'm sleeping more. I don't feel like doing my homework, things like that. And then maybe slowly you start to uncover something, but, but you're right. Like as a kid, you, there's, 
you're not really taught that. I mean, now I think schools are getting better where they have those uh, smiley faces, the different emojis where yes. kids walk in a classroom and they point and they say, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that. I didn't have that. Like, of course it, not. It a, yeah, you just had pissed or cool. Those were the only two emotions <laughs> <laughs> in, in my household. How, how do you discuss emotions in your household? You have five kids. I mean, that has to be uh, challenging. Well, I would love to talk about this. So I mentioned that I have published this book, When Mommy Feels Sad. And there's the emotion, right? When mommy feels sad. Um, It came as a result of talking to my therapist about talking to my kids. I was sitting at a soccer game after that conversation. Such an idyllic setting. My son was playing soccer, sun setting over the Colorado mountains. It was so lovely. And the words of a story came to my mind. And I realized that it was my story. It was the story of a mother with depression and the effect that it had on her family and how she was feeling and what she was doing to get better. And the story resolves uh, with a message of hope that here's a spoiler. The mom doesn't get better at the end of the book. She, but she sees herself differently. So I typed this up in word and I printed it out and I stapled it together. And this is how I presented it to my kids. Um, before my next therapy appointment. And I had a really sweet experience. It was emotional sharing this, this story with my kids and um, they had questions and we cried together. And then my therapist jumped out of her chair when I showed it to her because she felt like it was a story that was needed in the world for people to talk to their kids about depression. Um, So I hired an illustrator to bring this story to life. Nathan Allred, he is incredibly talented and he really added some things to the book that the words just didn't have by themselves. He suggested in the section where we talked about the mother's feelings, the mother felt frustrated. She felt embarrassed. She felt guilty. She felt ashamed. She felt hopeless. He put each emotion on a different page and the mother is expressing the emotion and saying something about the emotion. And then there are colors to describe the emotion. And I think it was really wise to separate each of them onto a different page because you can have a conversation about each emotion. So you can read this book to your child and say, I feel frustrated when I have depression because I don't want this to keep happening. And I feel frustrated that I can't take care of you the way I want. And I feel frustrated that I'm missing out on things. And then you can say, when have you felt frustrated? And even a small child can say, well, I felt frustrated when my brother stole the ball from me, or I felt frustrated when I couldn't have cereal for dinner, or I felt frustrated when you made me go to bed before the TV show was over. So even children can relate to that emotion of frustration even if they've never felt depressed. So you can have this connection. And my middle child was about 10 when we first had this conversation. I read him this story even without pictures. And for months afterward, he would say, hey mom, how's your diagnosis going? Have you seen your therapist? And I loved that 
for two reasons. One is that he wanted to talk about it. And I had given him a vocabulary to talk about it. And I did not have a vocabulary until I was 35. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what words to use. Um, and now I really encourage when you talk to children of all ages to use the real words. We talk about using real words with anatomy with our kids. Let's use real words with depression. Let's say the words psychiatrist, therapist, medication, mental illness. Let's use the word so that they're just normal. We're just talking about what we had for breakfast. It's not a big deal. It was a leap for me to do that. And because my son was curious, because he came to me and said, how's your diagnosis going? I had to give him an answer. And so then I had to use the words and say, well, I don't feel so great today, but I'm so glad that you asked me about it. Keep asking me about it. And I could say, I'm leaving you with a babysitter to go see my psychiatrist. And we're going to talk about my medication. And I'm not afraid to take my medicine in front of my kids. I take two medicines for bipolar and I take two for my thyroid. Would I be embarrassed about taking two for my thyroid? No, it's just an organ. It's an organ that's failing and, or a gland that's, that's failing. And I take two for my brain that needs a little support that it's just, it's the same. And talking to my kids about it in real terms has been completely liberating. It's so wonderful to be able to talk about it. And the other advantage is that when my kids have problems, I think it's easier for them to come to me and say, I'm worried about this, or I'm worried about that. Or, and now we know that part of our resources is a therapist. That's not a big deal. We can go to a therapist. So it's not, we've kind of normalized it at my house. Um, I wouldn't say that it's always easy to talk about stuff, but, but we talk about it. We've talked about suicide with our kids. We've talked about all kinds of stuff. And I think it's easier because we've given them the words. What's beautiful about what you shared, I mean, all of it, obviously, but one of the things that stand out is when you told your son, thank you for asking about my diagnosis and keep asking. I think that so many times um, people don't reach out because they feel like they might be imposing or a burden or nagging but you giving your son permission to keep checking in on you because yes, I'm, I'm neutral today. I'm level today. I'm, I'm joyous today. I'm, I'm happy or peaceful, but tomorrow might be a whole different ball game. So keep asking. And, and I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I wrote that down because that's a powerful thing for me to remind people to do when they do check in on me is thank you for checking in keep on asking. Is that, is that something that you got from the therapist? Is that something that you just naturally stumbled on? I think we just stumbled. I think we just, it was, I had a little bit of a hard time when I started reaching out to friends and telling them what was happening. I sort of had an expectation that once someone knew how badly I was doing, 
that they would check in all the time and that they would, because it was a crisis to me, it was rocking my world on a daily basis. And so I thought, oh, if someone knows, then they'll do X, Y, Z. And it didn't always pan out that way. And so then I sort of felt abandoned and there was a lot going on in my head and I've learned to give other people a lot of grace. And, and I know what it feels like to know that one of my friends is having a hard time, even if it's not with mental illness and not check in with them because I get wrapped up in my own life. I have a million things going on too, but it's good to ask for help and it's good to be aware of other people. There's just, we're all just humans trying to figure out the best way to do that. I would love to talk about ways to help people who are depressed. Um, can I ask you some questions? Absolutely. I <laughs> Put you on the spot for a second. Okay. So to frame how we can help people with mental illness, I'm going to ask you these questions. How would you help your neighbor, assuming your friends, if your neighbor broke his leg? What would you do for him? If my neighbor broke his leg, yep. first, I, it would depend on how he broke his leg. Was he trying to break in a, a, a house or <laughs> rescuing a, a child? I, 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 I'm being facetious. But um, I would first, I mean, like if, if, he, if, he, if he's calling me and he goes, I just broke my leg, then I'm either going to rush him to the hospital um, or I'm going to call an ambulance just depending on the severity of it. I mean, he sure. might be in a position where, uh, moving him might make it worse. Uh, uh, also I would see if I can go stabilize it, uh, in the meantime and okay. make sure that he's in a, uh, safe area that there aren't any other, um, threats or, you know, impending, uh, crises that could take place. Um, okay. and then, yeah. uh, once he's stable, you know, maybe he's at the hospital. Maybe go check in on him. It depends on which neighbor it is. Uh, sure, of course. <laughs> the relationship, the, the relationship, relationship can dictate some things. Yes. Um, or, you know, once he's back home is to, you know, hey, do you, you know, can I get you anything? Do you need me to, you know, grab some groceries for you? That kind of thing. But also, you know, making sure that I'm putting boundaries of, because I know in the past I would typically say, what can I do for you? Can I do anything for you? And now I'm, I'm learning that to say, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Would you like me to pick something up for you on the way? Like to set awesome. boundaries around how I uh, am willing to help you versus letting you dictate the terms. Sure. Um, okay. Which isn't always easy. Right. Uh, and then I think that... The other part is, you know, maybe some gratitude for that the fact that my leg wasn't broken. And and maybe I would even check in on some family members just to be like, hey, everybody limbs doing OK. <laughs> you know, you start thinking about other yeah. people. It's, it's, it's kind of like when you see a crisis in, in Budapest or, or, you know, Sri Lanka or whatever. You go, hey, is everybody else? You guys doing all right? Um, and then I think. That might be it, unless for whatever reason, the injury triggers some type of unexpected emotional response. It, you know, it might lodge a memory that I had suppressed or forgotten about. And then I would talk to my therapist. Okay. Journal about sure. It. Yeah. 
Okay. So you're an awesome neighbor. (laughs) Think about kind of a different uh, scenario. Your sister's son has brain surgery. What would she need? My sister's son has brain surgery. How is that? Uh, that, It's a little different than having a broken leg. It is. Um, I think I would, I mean, immediately call her. Um, I don't know if I would fly down there. Yeah. Because I would be thinking about the, my sister lives in a different state. I have three sisters. Okay. uh, But they live in different states. So, but I would check in on them, see what they needed, and then see how I could best support them through uh, what their needs are. Okay. And and then check in uh, periodically. But, you know, being mindful of space because, you know, I have a big family and, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the, a phone call and a see a phone call. So um, I, sure. I would choose communication wisely. Okay. So how is supporting a friend or family member with depression or another mental illness the same or different than supporting a friend or family member with one of these physical illnesses or injuries? I think when I think about uh, the physical injuries, uh, it's it's acute. Um, Mm -hmm. So you might have to respond quicker uh, where depression is typically depression is, is more chronic unless someone is obviously calling me with suicide ideations, which, you know, I've received those phone calls and I've had those discussions. Um, But in terms of what I do actually practice with my friends who have called, reached out is I just periodically check in on them, send them Mm -hmm. a message or say, Hey, I'm thinking about you or, or, you know, what I've actually found to be more beneficial is um, just to talk to them like, they aren't experiencing depression. Um, mm-hmm. Meaning, um, like I have, a, I have a friend, he reaches out and, and he was going, uh, he had some suicidal ideations. And so instead of saying, hey man, are you still feeling suicidal? Or, you know, are you, how's the depression going? I go, man, I just saw the best movie. It was so great. Uh, I think you'd enjoy it. And uh, right now I'm in Alaska uh, hanging out drinking my ties, you know, just something <laughs> kind of neutral to uh-huh. expand their view of things in case they are in that dark hole instead of them feeling like every time we talk, we have to talk about that because that, like you said, that can feel like a burden too. It's like, I don't want to talk about the depression every time we have a conversation. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know what to do. And so they don't do anything and they're afraid to say the wrong thing. So they don't say anything. So it, there's there's a dance. Um, one point I'd like to illustrate is that it's e- sometimes easier for people who don't have your qualifications <laughs> to respond to a mental illness. It, it seems easier to respond to a physical illness, right? If your friend has the flu, maybe you take them chicken soup. If they have mono and they're sick for months or cancer, then there are things in place that we can put in place to take care of them. Meal trains or 
helping with rides to school or lots of different ways that we can respond when someone has a physical illness. If someone has cancer, a lot of times neighborhoods mobilize, churches mobilize to help and support the whole family. But if someone is hospitalized for mental illness, that doesn't necessarily happen. It's harder. But in my experience, a lot of the things that a person who has cancer needs and her family needs, those are the same things that I needed when I was really depressed, when I couldn't get out of bed, I couldn't make my kids dinner. I couldn't get them where they needed to go. We weren't keeping up with the laundry, lots of things that people could step in and help with if they knew, if they knew. And I think we need to shift to talking about and viewing our mental illnesses the same way we talk about and view our physical illnesses. And it's the same process to go to a doctor for medicine for asthma. You have a condition, you see a doctor, you take a medication, there's a therapy, same thing for depression, but it's viewed in a totally different way. I had some people help me during some really hard times. And I thought they were really amazing examples. I'm sure people will listen to these and think, where can I get your friends? Because <laughs> I really had some amazing things happen for me. But one day I was talking with a friend about a lot of things that were going on. And she said, what can I do to help you? And I said, I need the number of a cheap cleaning lady. I wanted to hire someone to help me at home. So that night, this friend emails and says, I want to be your cheap cleaning lady. And my fee is $0. I'll be there Wednesday. And for four months, this angel came to my house every Wednesday and she swept and mopped all of my wood floors. She vacuumed all of the carpet and she cleaned my bathrooms for four months. That was amazing. And while she was there, I got out of bed and I worked on the things that only I could do. I paid the bills or I don't know, cleaned my own bedroom because I didn't want her to come in. <laughs> but working, having someone in my home working and I could work together with her was such a huge gift. Another friend offered to teach my girls how to cook. They were nine and 11 and she took them once a week and she taught them how to make these basic recipes and then brought our family dinner every Thursday for maybe six months. And my girls learned some valuable skills and I didn't have to make dinner on Thursdays. Again, that's a huge gift. It was an amazing response. Another thing that friend did was ask me to go walking with her twice a week. And I had her turned her down twice. <laughs> I had turned her down mostly because it was, it wasn't the right time. It interfered with my schedule, but when the pandemic started and my whole schedule went away, she asked if I would just walk with her and she asked me to walk with her. So she could check on me. She knew I was having a hard time. And that was a way to get me talking. And I just talked. I talked and talked and talked and talked. And she was such a huge gift. She still is. We still walk every Tuesday and Thursday. But it was during those walks that she heard how hard dinner is for me. I Even when I'm well, I have a hard time making dinner. But she listened to that. And then she conceived this 
dinner project. Um, several years ago, when I was still in kind of the beginning stages of figuring out my depression, I had a couple of friends who wanted to visit me about once a month. And I think the idea was just to talk and to check in on me and stuff, but they wanted to help me also. And so they didn't want to just sit on the couch. So we talked as we cleaned my kitchen and as we folded my laundry. And at the time I was doing all the laundry in the house. So laundry for seven is a lot of laundry. And we would fold these huge mountains of laundry together. And it was humbling to have my friends fold my underwear. <laughs> you know, it was humbling to have them really in the nitty gritty of my life, but they wanted to do it. And I, you know, these are kind of dramatic examples. They were huge miracles in my life, but I really believe that I received help because I asked for it. They could have said, we want to help you. And I could have said, oh, let's sit on the couch. I could have said to my friend, instead of saying, I want a, the number of a cleaning lady, I could have said, oh, I'm fine. We'll be fine. Everything's fine. And when I walked with my friend, I could have talked about everything but depression. But I, when people were there asking what they could do, I told them what I really needed. And so we really got some things done. And it was a huge blessing in my life, but also an example of how I can be that person for others now that I, when I am doing better, I'm not always doing better, <laughs> but when I am doing better, I can do things for people that they actually need. That's so incredible. I mean, my, my pupils are dilating right now. <laughs> Because I just went through a, a, a storm of emotions recently where I was just bawling my eyes out for a few days intermittently. And I had a friend reach out and he goes, how can I support you? And, and I think that's part of where my hopelessness stemmed from was, I was like, I don't know how I need support. So that's, that, that, that's scary when you recognize you need help. And then you're not, when somebody asks you, well, how can I support you? And you're like, I don't know what I need because I spent so much of my childhood suppressing my needs. And mm. now I don't, I have no idea what I need and when I need it. And I know that there are so many people out there like that. And so that prevents people from asking for help also is because they're like, well, I'm not sure. Do I need a life raft? Do I need uh, a house? Do I need a cleaning person? Um, but really, I, I really appreciate you sharing tangible ways in which people can receive support other than a therapist, because, you know, we talk about mental illness, but there's also a social atrophy that can take place because of depression, meaning that, you know, we isolate, we withdraw, we hide in shame and guilt. And so we're not building social connections. And then the ones that we do have, this slowly deteriorate because we stop, you know, reaching out. We stop picking up the phone. We stop, you know, going to an events that we're invited to. And then so when we need somebody to help us do laundry or to, to make dinner, there's no one to call. We, you know, yeah. we, we've let those 
connections atrophy. So beautiful reminder of the importance of uh, maintaining and building social connections. Yes. I, a few other things that I have learned how to say certainly didn't come naturally, but a part of it is just having the right people who are willing to do things. But I have learned to ask people to just sit with me and let me cry. So sit with me in my grief, let me cry for no reason and don't try to fix it. And thinking of one friend in particular who would just do that again and again and again, (laughs) find me in a puddle again and again and again, and just sit with me. That was such a gift. And it was hard for her and it was hard for me, but it was exactly what I needed. Um, sometimes tasks like the ones that I mentioned. Heidi, um, I, can, can we peel back the layer on that, on yeah, that one? Because yeah, you yeah. said it was hard for her and hard for you. Can you describe for us what that, that challenge was to, in terms of just sitting with you? Because I, I know that that's a challenge for other people and they may not understand why it's difficult. I think it was hard for my friend because she loves me and seeing me in pain was difficult. And there's nothing that anyone could have done to fix what was happening. But I think like we would sit with someone who had just lost their husband. We wouldn't know what to say and certainly nothing we could do could bring him back. But sometimes just sitting there is the thing. Listening to what they have to say, it's emotional. I remember a time that I was lying on the couch with my head on a pillow in her lap, and we both just cried and cried and cried. And I was crying for no reason. And she was crying because she was heartbroken that I was feeling that way. And it was painful, but I needed to get it out and I needed to not be alone. And it was just the right kind of service at the right time. But I'm sure she was walking in the door thinking, what's going to happen now? (laughs) Or I'm concerned about my friend. I don't know what to do. I feel inadequate. I've gone into lots of situations thinking I am not the person for this job. But I think sometimes we, we are the right person simply because we're the one who shows up. Wow, that is beautiful. I love that. We are the right person because we're the one who shows up. Yeah, that's powerful. And then I can see you have a, a list of other things you wanted to share. What was the next thing you're going to share after oh, uh, someone just sitting with you? Sometimes getting out of the house is what I need. And it doesn't have to cost money. We can go for a walk. We can sit in the park. We can go to church. We can go to a movie or take me to the book group or the baby shower that I'm invited to, but I don't want to go and I haven't bought a gift. (laughs) I belong to a book group and I read the book maybe twice a year. (laughs) I go for the people. I always feel better after I've gone to book group and we never talk about what's wrong with me. (laughs) We just, or, or what's wrong with any of us really. We just talk. And that is very therapeutic. I went to a movie over the weekend and with a bunch of friends 
we saw each other for 10 minutes before the movie and 10 minutes after the movie. And then we watched the movie in silence. But getting out of the house was absolutely what I needed on Saturday night. So sometimes just offering to pick someone up for the thing that you're both going to is helpful. I love it when someone calls me from Costco and says, do you need milk? (laughs) That is a wonderful service for someone who struggles with basic stuff. And everyone who knows me knows that I hate the grocery store. So I love it when someone calls and offers to buy milk or bread or bananas or anything. Sometimes they'll just call and say, send me a list. And then I pay them back. They're not buying my groceries but they take care of the errand. And sometimes those things are the hardest. Yeah. Just to know that you're thought of, you know, randomly, like that, yeah. those are those, those are those bursts of dopamine that we, we, we are desperately seeking just random acts of kindness and, and mm-hmm. to feel like, Oh, somebody actually cares about us. Yeah. Someone who mows my lawn when I'm out of town. That's huge. They just, They saw my long grass. They know I'm gone. They took care of it. It's just that remembrance. Depression is very isolating. You can feel very alone. Whether it's true or not, you can feel very alone. And alone in a crowd is a very common feeling, I think. But some of those little things can make a huge difference. Was there depression elsewhere in your family? But did, there, did this open up a conversation with you and other family members? There is depression in my family. I didn't know about it until I was probably 30. And it's a lot in a lot of places in my family. But I, you know, we're all working on our own flavor of mental illness. But I like that it's not, I don't feel like I'm afraid to talk about it with family members anymore. I don't very often have one brother that we sometimes have conversations. I think we feel more of like we have more of the same experience, but it's, um, it's definitely biological. And in talking to my older kids, I have a son who's 20 and a son who's 18. And we've had, I wouldn't say ongoing, but periodic conversations about depression and what to look out for. And these are the symptoms that you should see, or this is what I've noticed in you. And I haven't seen a whole lot of manifestation in my children, but it's, there's definitely a risk that they could develop these things because of my biology that runs in their veins. So that's another reason to keep talking because it's, it could come up, it could come up with their kids and it it could come up for a lot of years still just because they're adults barely doesn't mean they're out of the woods. What does your mania look like? Mine is It's called hypomania. I have type two bipolar and hypomania for me, it always starts with not enough sleep. And sometimes it's triggered by events that cause me to not sleep enough. Like I have to be really careful over the holidays 
we especially we run a little charity that is very busy in December and I have to be religious about my sleep so I don't tip into mania uh, so I don't get enough sleep and I can't just stay in bed if I'm not sleeping so I get up and I do things projects in the middle of the night I start things that I can't finish uh, I trained for a marathon in 11 weeks once when I was manic <laughs> at the time I didn't know what it was I had no clue how I could possibly do this. I had never run more than four miles and I did an 11 mile run one weekend and I felt awesome. That was mania. Um, mania amplifies my good characteristics. Um, I'm also pretty cranky. I'm irritated with people who um, aren't following my program, <laughs> which usually means everyone because I want to go and do all of these things and have grand ideas and start things. And, um, but then mania is always, always, always followed by a deep dive. And so I was kind of dismayed when I, when we figured out what was going on, kind of identified some patterns with the psychiatrist and had, I actually had a manic episode when I wrote the book because I got so consumed by this story and the idea of publishing. And I was just high hyper-focused on it for many days and then crashed so badly. It was really scary. And the psychiatrist said, well, the treatment protocol is to eliminate the mania because if we eliminate the mania, you won't have those deep dives. And it was devastating to lose that really high experience because I spend so much of my life in a depressed state <laughs> to lose that euphoria was really hard. I really, I appreciate the wisdom of it. It makes sense, but it was still hard. I was still sad about losing that happy face. Why can't I just be happy for a while? But that is the that is the goal, the treatment. I take lithium, which is kind of the gold standard for bipolar. I didn't for a while because it made me nauseated. <laughs> and it was a huge trigger to the trauma of that terrible pregnancy. And so I didn't take it. But eventually I decided I could live with being nauseated. And anyway, that eventually went away. And the lithium uh, decreases the range of my lows and highs. And it spreads them out also. And that's the, it's working. My medication is working. Are there any dietary changes you've made in, order, in terms of managing the highs and the lows? I mostly manage with medication and therapy. I always feel better when I'm eating well. But that's hard. <laughs> so I don't always do it. When you say eating well, like what does that, what would that look like for you? Like if an ideal meal, what would you, if you were at your optimal and you're like, oh, if I could eat like this all the time, I would feel stable. What would that look, what do you think that would look like for you? I think it involves getting rid of sugar. I think sugar is a big, um, it influences my mood a lot, but it's a cycle. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. If I have too much sugar, then I don't feel well. And so I cope with eating more sugar 
you know, standard American diet, but high protein, lots of veggies. That's, that's the goal. And I'm working on how to make it a maintainable lifestyle choice rather than just a diet. Do you practice any journaling or meditation? I do love to journal. I, I find that I am, I'm sporadic with my journaling, but when I do it, it really helps me to process things. And sometimes I will type up three pages in a word document and then I delete the whole thing and I feel better. (laughs) I think same same here. I have a friend who, uh, Alan Havy, who I've had on a podcast every day, he does, uh, his morning pages where he just freestyle writes and then he crumples up that page and, and throws it in the trash. Yeah. Uh, which I, like I don't that. know why I don't do it. Cause it's not like I ever go back and read anything that I've, uh, right. <laughs> written. Right. Um, but your book, when mommy feels sad, a mother's journey through depression, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think would be of value to the listeners in terms of managing their depression or communicating more effectively with their kids or even spouse? I'm glad that you bring in the spouse because it's a really hard job to be married to or just care for someone who is mentally ill. The caregivers are the unsung heroes of the world of mental illness. It's a, it's a tough job. It's relentless and it's draining. Um, so my hat's, my hat goes off to everyone who is in that position. It's really hard. It was in the beginning to talk to my husband about how I was really feeling. A lot of it was about the filter I was putting on it with, with the shame and the stigma. And I didn't want to be real about how I was feeling because I put a judgment on it before it even came out of my mouth. But talking to my husband has been so healing. It's, it's brought us closer together. It's taken time. I mean, I was diagnosed with bipolar 10 years ago and it took a long time to really have real conversations about it. And even I had a little manic episode maybe two months ago, and it really threw me because I thought that my my medication was supposed to manage it. And I kind of freaked out for a few days, but the person I wanted to talk to was my husband, even though he really doesn't have a frame of reference. He's never experienced that. It doesn't really make sense, but having that relationship was really important. Um, in the book, I originally self-published in 2018, but I republished the book this year with Covenant Books because I wanted to add some things. We added a glossary of terms and uh, some discussion questions So you don't have to think up your own questions to ask your kids. Um, There's activities that you can do in at home or in a classroom setting. This is a great book for classrooms. I know lots of therapists who use it in their practices. So there are resources in the book besides just the story. And if you don't have the book, you can tell your own story. You can ask your own questions. You can discuss your own feelings. You can 
you know, you are the resource for your own depression. But the book is an excellent way to start that really important conversation. That is definitely the goal of the book, to start conversations. And you can find the book on Amazon and I'm sure uh, your website. You have a website for this? I'm working on a website. I have a Facebook page called When Mommy Feels Sad. All right. And we are working on other social media things, probably a blog. But the main source is Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. I love it. Uh, thank you, Heidi, for being here. Last question. I ask this of all my guests because I always imagine there's someone listening in on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? I have an 11-year-old almost. And whenever I ask her, where's your lunchbox? Where's your socks? Where's whatever? She says, somewhere over the rainbow. And that's her way of saying, I have no idea, but it has to be out there somewhere. And if you're out there listening and wondering where hope can be found, I promise you it's out there. If you had asked me five years ago, if you had told me five years ago that I would be sharing my story of depression in a very public way and talking about my book about depression (laughs) that I wrote, I would not have believed you because I was on the precipice. I couldn't imagine that things could ever get better. Things were so dark and horrible. And I love the idea that hope is out there. Even if you can't see it, it's there. It exists. And there's something just for you that will help. And you just have to keep looking. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS. You can also go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and enjoy your 10% off your first month of therapy today. Uh, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you for having me.